Welcome to Victory Over Self Radio, a podcast that dives into all things athletics. On today's episode, we recap the 2022 Central Virginia Sports Performance Seminar. This was a strong lineup of coaches dishing out great information for coaches to use on a daily basis. There's a lot of info in this episode that you can use immediately within your programs. Hope you guys enjoy. All right, fellas. So this past weekend, we had conferences three and four of the summer. Going under our belt as Ross, you headed up to Richmond, Virginia from Florida for the Central Virginia Sports Performance Summit, otherwise known as CVASPs. Always run incredibly well by Jay DeMeo. Uh, just always a top-notch uh, conference, not only with the speaker lineups, but the way that Jay sets things up to make you interact with other coaches, uh, even some of the speakers. And then uh, just, yeah, that, that social aspect that you get at CVASPs is uh, kind of unmatched. And then I headed up from uh, Virginia to Minneapolis, Minnesota, and I was up there for the first and hopefully uh, continued or kind of annual uh, Revolutions in Speed Training Clinic hosted by uh, Cal Dietz and Chris Corfus and Dan Fichter. And so, yeah, Ross, we... Uh, we want to hear, want to hear about CVASPs and uh, if we have any sort of time at the end, uh, we could talk a little bit about uh, some of the things that I learned up in Minnesota, but we'll probably have to save that for another episode here. But right off the bat, Ross, uh, kind of just recap for us your first experience of going to CVASPs in 2019 and ultimately why you want to go back here in 2022. Uh, we had kind of two COVID years and then, yeah, we could kind of just start getting into it and, and chop it up. Yeah. So when we went to CVAPS in 2019, I'd, I definitely thought that that was probably the best conference we'd ever been to in terms of, of details and mm-hmm. the speakers and really the nitty gritty of it. Uh, TFC is always good as well, but there's something with, I think just with CVAPS and what Jay does is He's going to get some speakers that have a lot of depth of knowledge on whatever subject, and they do a great job of, of breaking it down and, and building on each other. And it's not always the the same subject either. You know, it's not like you're hearing, you mm-hmm. know, five speakers of the same topic. It, it, it's pretty diverse. So because uh, I remember leaving CVAPS in 2019 and me and you, I know we both had a stupid amount of notes. Um and it was, and again, you're hearing coaches too, at least for me at the time, like I didn't even know who they were. And then as soon as they're talking, it's like, why don't I know who this person is? And you kind of go, yes, you kind of go down yeah. those rabbit holes. And so then, uh, obviously I had the opportunity to come back up for this year. Same thing, man. It was still good. Uh, coaches again, were knowledgeable, good presentation. It's still in terms of just information. I think it's probably the best one one of the best ones, if not the best one you can, you can get to. Cause it's also because it's limited on the number of people that can be there in person. You know, it's not like you're there at multi, you know, thousands of people or, you know, a thousand people at a conference. Instead you're, you know, you got a hundred people that or 150 people, whatever it is in a room listening to these people. And it's, it's pretty informal and talking to these guys, but, um, yeah, it was at uh, this year. The speakers were uh, Adam Petway, uh, if I'm saying his last name right, Alvermeil, 
Dak Deshant, Mike Wadengo, uh, Jonas, and then Allie Kirshner. I mean, they were they were studs. Uh, and the, so the first speaker was Adam, and I, I had never heard of him before, but he is currently the uh, basketball guy for Louisville. And before he was in the NBA, I think he spent some time with the 76ers and maybe Golden State, but I could be wrong there. But I, did, I know he's in the NBA. And he was at Arkansas at one point doing track and basketball. Uh, But he broke down. He's got a ton of research on the biomechanics of basketball and like broke down the different joint angles and actions and plays and movements uh, of the NBA. So it was super detailed. Uh, It wasn't necessarily something that can help me, but it was pretty cool just just hearing hearing that research and that uh, he'd taken the time to do that. And he's written a book. Uh, I think it's literally called Biomechanics of Basketball. Uh, don't quote me on that. But oh, wow. but uh, it was it was good. Um, the, the takeaways from he had a couple of just little nuggets that I that I liked because um, he was talking about the day before a game, wanting your uh, reactive strength index, your RSI to if it is a little uh, it's, if it's above average, then the day before a game, then they had found that your game speed is above average. Uh, but if it's below average the day before a game, then your game speed is below average, which makes sense. But it was a, it was just a little nugget that was like, okay, that's something that if I ever have the technology to measure that, uh, that you can kind of track that and, and keep that in mind. And that was that was post practice uh, RSI, post practice RSI. And then he was talking about with like research, you know, how do we how do we make and design research that more better reflects our game uh not our game but sport because if in a in a close setting in lifting or in a science lab uh he was making the point that athletes are going to produce like three times the body force body weight forces but in a game when you're not in a in a research lab they're going to get upwards of of 10 times body weight forces so how do you better design research and drills uh not drills, but research and things to track that are more closely mimicking the forces produced in a game. Uh, so then it's a little more accurate, which that was, I thought that was a good point. He, he, he compared it to uh, caged and uncaged animals. Um, so again, in the big thing there, cause he led with that. And then again, he's talking about his research of this is really what we need to be looking at and not, yeah, the force plate data and stuff is great, but you know, the real test is, is in the game. So then the, really the last kind of big thing from him that I got was, uh, I mean, cage uncaged, but then his other big highlight was that, um, elite athletes are the fastest at the, the least amount of distance. So in other words, they are very economically sound when it comes to their movement. They're not going to, to waste, uh, movement. They're going to be very efficient. And when it comes to making a decision to make a play, they're going to take the least amount of energy. And they're also going to be the fastest at that quick distance. Cause then they were showing like yardage of in a, in an NBA game versus college versus high school and that high school players, you know, you're all over the court and you're running everywhere, but NBA players had the least amount of distance in a game. And it's just cause they're efficient and they don't, they don't waste movement. Oh wow! I was just writing writing that down. Yeah. That's good stuff. 
Ross, one question uh, while I got a sec here. Uh, talking about the RSI um, going like the pre-game day to game day, did they find any way to affect a change great before question. a game if they had a low Yeah, that RSI? is a great question. He didn't talk about that. Um, they He was just saying that they would, uh, as far as like measuring it, they would run their practice the day before game. They would check the RSI, and then it was just comparatively, they would compare that data to then their, uh, obviously their game day speed off the GPS. Now, I'm sure that if they saw that that RSI was down the day before, they may or may not try to do some things, maybe pregame uh, or you know eight hours before in that morning to kind of get them better and get them fired up. But but he did not specifically mention that stuff, but I think that's a really good point though and something to think about where if you do have that stuff lacking, like what is going to be the quickest and easiest way to attempt to bring that up other than you know sleep, water, and get some food? Yeah. Yeah, you got to think like if that, you know, their RSI is low from the baseline, you know, they have from previous data, then you got to think they've they've got some way mm-hmm. to, oh, well, you know, something's off. You know, we see people come into a weight room and maybe, you know, we do jumps or we do a grip test or whatever to get an idea of where they're at. And, um, you know, whatever we do, you know, something's off, like they're they're stressed you know, something's happened in school, their girlfriend dumped them, you know, so then what can we do to help? So I'm sure with their better analysis, they have some way of making some modifications for the athlete, hopefully. Yeah. And I, I have the same question. If you wanted to like their uh, recovery details or methods, if somebody did have a, a low RSI, but that's probably just one of the secrets mm-hmm. of the trade that they're not willing to share just yet. He was making the point. Well, really, he, he was like, he was pumping out so much data that I was like, I, I, I just kind of had to sit there and just watch because there was no like random notes. It was just figure, <laughs> figure after figure after figure. I'm like, okay, I'm just going to sit here and watch and we'll see if we pick up something. <laughs> So when he was going over all the biomechanical stuff, did that uh, trigger you for, oh, let me try to think of this for this sport or that for that sport? Or was it just like, oh, this is a lot and too detailed. I cover all these sports. I can't get into the nitty gritty on just one. Yeah, I think if I was working with one sport, it's really just more, uh, I think it's really just more good information to know. Because he was saying they used uh, video analysis and bro- like it took a stupid amount of work to kind of draw and measure these angles. Like it would, he, he broke down like offense, defense, and then it was you know the angle is the knee is at this angle, the the ankle is at this mm, angle, okay. typically at, at this step. So it kind of boiled down to thinking, uh, at least I, the way I thought about it is. They need to have this minimum amount of, of ankle flexion, this minimum amount of, of knee flexion, hip flexion, like being able to get into these positions at least okay. um, to be healthy and things like that. Like that was the big thing that I thought about. Um, nothing, at least with like my high school kids. I'm not going to think about that. But uh, a couple coaches uh, like here, I think he had made a comment of like basically that American football should be 
doing this type of breakdown with American football that he is doing with basketball because it's taking the sport and making it, you're actually like looking and evaluating and testing what's actually happening on the field versus randomly jumping on a force plate and trying to uh, evaluate it that way. Yeah, no, that, that all makes sense. And that's uh, a little bit of what I came away with from, if you remember the coaches site conference where, these hockey coaches were breaking down all these on ice scenarios. And I was just trying to think, okay, how can I take what they're talking about there and build upon it in the weight room? And so a note I wrote down from there was you were just saying how like elite athletes are the most efficient. They take the least energy at quick distances. Uh, That's something we could affect in the weight room, making sure they have uh, mobile enough ankles, strong enough feet, uh, strong enough knees and hips and that's going to help you know project them in that quick all right jab get here get into space but also just a reminder of you need to have a high iq for the sport to make it to a high and elite level uh we we've all played with a great athlete who just didn't know the sport and it just limited them uh so kind of a, a plug for coaches really break down film and uh, teach your athletes how to play the game and what to see and all those factors really go a long way to have nba players travel less distance than a high school player like that's crazy mm-hmm. it's uh it's funny i think of when i was playing junior hockey there was a, a guy a vet on one of the other teams who uh every year was one of the you know top point guys but he was fat oh, yeah <laughs> like he was he was fat i mean like you know 19 20 years old and um you know everybody in the league chirped him but here he was one of the like top three point guys in the league and he just saw the ice and you could he was literally like everywhere but then yep nowhere and you know making plays puck off his stick quick in open ice and you know, he was, he was putting pucks in the net. Just very efficient. Maybe that's why he was fat. Yeah, <laughs> not as much movement. I always tell the story of yeah. one of the not greatest athletes uh, I ever coached was one of our, our top four D just because his, his IQ on the ice was so high. And we were measuring heart rates during games, and he would always have one of the lowest, like, trimp scores or strain scores or – uh, how hard that was for you type of thing. Even though he played big minutes, it was just he he was always calm, cool, collected in stressful situations and did not waste energy. He knew exactly what angle to take, what read to make. Uh, again, because he wasn't a freak athlete, he wasn't able to kind of like jump into the rush a lot. And so he was just kind of a, a solid stay-at-home top four defenseman for us. But yeah, no, it's it's always interesting. The higher the level, the higher the IQ. I, I I just think it goes a long way. So one more on that. Something super interesting was uh, Chris Corfist and Cal Dietz were talking about uh, surfaces that they have their guys sprint on, and so Cal is having them sprint on a concrete like mezzanine at the hockey arena, right? So his weight room is directly below the mezzanine of the arena, they go up a flight of stairs and they're sprinting on that concrete. And Chris has his 
you know, people that come to his house sprint on his street. And Chris cited basketball players as incredibly uh, elastic, springy, and resilient. Right. When you think of how many games are in an NBA season and they're traveling at very, very high speeds for the most part, like basketball players are decently healthy to make it almost a whole year. Yeah. You're going to have injuries, but it's, it's kind of crazy when you think about it, high speeds, high velocities, two, three, four nights a week. And Chris was just kind of citing, like they all grow up playing on concrete or playing on blacktops and they all, they're all kind of fine. So I just thought that was a, an interesting takeaway from the basketball world that a uh, sprint coach made. Mm. I mean, I sprint my kids on a gym floor every day. So we're doing we're doing just fine. Next speaker up, and this was on uh, Friday for you, Ross, was uh, Al Vermeil. Yeah, so he spoke after that. And then uh, it's always good to, to have guys like that speak because it always brings me back to center. Of somebody that's done it for a long time and he's going to have all the the knowledge that obviously that we have, but point being he did it without technology. So you're naturally having to kind of really notice things to and really watch your athletes at the end of the day to see uh, what you're doing and be really detailed in that perspective. Um, and what I so what I did not realize about Coach Ramil is that he coached and taught at a high school for like ten years uh, when he first got started. Uh, oh wow! He was a he was a football coach and then did the strength stuff for his team. And I could be could be wrong and do not quote me on this, but I could have sworn that he said he went straight from the high school he was at to the Forty ers as their strength guy. Now that was oh. that was through Jeez. that was through no uh, like family connections because his brother's a football coach, so you know that was through some connections there as far as making that mm. transition. But either way, he went from a high school to the 49ers and obviously the Bulls as well. Uh, the big things from him, and this and this was just kind of some other some other coaches had made this point of. Everything starts and ends with work capacity and strength. And me and Chris were talking about this a little bit of at least for 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 high school kids, I can I can 100% say that yeah, they 100% need the work capacity and that strength work first. In in conjunction with sprinting and jumping and all that kind of stuff, but they do severely lack the the work capacity and the strength, most of them. Uh, and then when you get to college, yes, you still have kids that do need to work on work capacity and strength, but there's a lot of kids that, that do already have that base and do already have that strength. So it's not necessarily a huge uh, emphasis compared to what it may need to be for a, for a younger athlete, uh, at least what I'm seeing. And so it was just kind of, it was good to hear that because that's a big debate that, that I've kind of had in my head of, I probably, I do need to touch on this a little bit more than what I do. And it was just good to hear it uh, from him and, and a couple other coaches. And then his other big point was uh, athleticism is all about impulse, you know, being able to contract and relax quickly. Uh, and, and he got into talking about cleans and, and things of that nature. But at the end of the day, it comes back to, to your ability as an athlete to contract quickly, 
and relax quickly. And cleans accomplish that, jumps, sprints, you know, that type of stuff. Um, and that, uh, just the way that he was really emphasizing it and the different movements that he also was suggesting um, also aligned with what uh, Coach Gillespie did in, in the workouts and the different things that we that he would do with plyos and different things. Um, cause they also got into like single leg work into some single leg jumps, like a step up jump, like having your foot up on the box, jumping up, landing back down on one foot on the same foot, um, broke that, broke that down. And then he, uh, he got to talking about a little bit on, um, high low model. And after this past weekend, and I'm already, I'm already sold on high low model anyway, uh, and that's just the best way to train an athlete in my opinion. But, uh, he was just like, yeah, you have to go high, low, like you, you have to. And the, the caveat to that was he, he was making the point of that at the beginning of a season and, and when you first start training, everything you do is going to be medium intensity because they're all out of shape. And so starting with, mm-hmm work capacity and getting that in first even if you were trying to do a high low model you're still going to be in the middle because they're just not in shape so you might as well take time and deliberately plan work capacity type of work at the beginning whether it's two you know two weeks three weeks four weeks whatever you would like to do um that is you might as well just start there and then you can go high low and and do it that way uh and of course uh, every strength and conditioning coach is probably going to agree that high low is the way to go, but it was just good hearing it from him of it used to not do that. And then just found that, that that was the way to go. And then the, the last point I'll make, and then you guys can break down, we can break down some stuff is he then made the point of, you need to spend time with individual sport coaches. So you need to spend time with, uh, Olympic weightlifting, with track, with swim, with golf, whatever it may be. Because those coaches are responsible for one person. They are, they have to be very detailed. They have to find success for this person and learn these little nuances in order to fix them versus these general things that we typically deal with. Um, individual sport coaches have to, they've got to figure out a solution for the one person, which means you've got to have a really broad knowledge and a depth of knowledge in order to fix those things. So I thought that was a, a really great point. It's uh, yeah, to, to your point, it's, it's amazing how these older coaches were able to do all this without a, a, a jump mat, you know, without a uh, good VBT training, without all the technology that we have today, it kind of always blows my mind, but knowing some of these older coaches, it is interesting. A lot of them end up kind of down the same path or the same road. And I was, I'm always pumped to hear somebody that promotes the high low model. Cause I, I agree with you, Ross on that one of, it just works. It just works so well. And so question for you now, Ross is, and you kind of alluded to it with this kind of reinforcement of the need for work capacity and with you being at the high school level and as your summer programs are kind of coming to an end because uh, school starts soon down there in Florida. Recap for us or, you know, talk about next summer, maybe what you'll do different from a work capacity standpoint. Yeah. So I think next summer 
the biggest so i'll go back this summer i thought we did really well uh prepping our i can speak to football uh did really well prepping our kids for a bunch of uh high efforts yards you know sprints and uh Mm. we got around uh 800 yards a week of legit full out sprints in some capacity uh and that was and that's wow. that's if you're in, wow. that's if you're including you know your wickets that are you know varying between 20 to 40 yards mm. plus your sprint plus uh all you know your excel all that kind of stuff so roughly 800 yards a week plus we did 7 on 7 so they're playing the games they're getting speed work there then mm-hmm. that also does not include change of direction or agility work, which is more high speed yardage. And so, well, not high speed, but nevertheless, more more yardage. So I think we did a good job of getting them ready for preseason and getting to that point. And I think they're ready to go uh, for the ones that have that were consistent. I think for next summer, uh, when it comes to building that work capacity, is having a doing a little better job of of ramping them up to that point like we we probably Mm -hmm. started around 600 yards and then went to 800 like not gradually but you know we started maybe at six and then literally next week we're basically doing 800 every week um give or take do a little better job of ramping it up and honestly trying to get a little more yardage because there was a there was a post on the National High School uh, Strength and Conditioning Association's Facebook page talking about condition football conditioning and the yardage. And one of the guys do from uh, uh, the high school that is uh, Corpus is at that their new strength guy. He posted uh, their sprint yardage uh, chart, not chart, but just how many uh, high speed yardages you get in a game. And the top end was basically mm-hmm. twelve to fourteen hundred yards for skill guys, and then linemen was like eight hundred. And so, getting uh, those guys, at least within my training, getting them pretty close to that mark by the end of summer, but just starting at six hundred, and then ramp it up a little bit and get to that one thousand, eleven hundred, twelve hundred ish mark. Um, I'll just be, I'll be more, and I'll have a better answer for that once we get to the actual uh, season, but to just to, to see how they're doing, but to answer your question, really that work capacity, I think for in the summer, I'm, I'm not worried about it. Cause I think my work capacity work should be in January for football. Now for everybody else, uh, it's just kind of going to be there, okay. going to kind of be there from their sport per se. Uh, cause their sports going to get them in shape, but football is that anomaly where they do need that work capacity. But really in the beginning of these off seasons with these different sports, if they are legit in off season, that's where I'll, I'll start kind of getting that work capacity up. Like our baseball guys that are just baseball kids in the fall, mm-hmm. I'll get that work capacity up here in the next couple months. No, that makes sense. It's good to hear how you kind of break down with the individual sports as well. And then to uh, give a, a shameless plug for myself here when it comes to work capacity, I do a lunge matrix twice a week. And 
I think uh, for hockey, but for all sports, it's it's like it's incredible. And so our first week we start at it's 42 lunges because it's uh, seven different lunges and we start with three reps each leg. So uh, 21 and 21, 42. And we so we start the summer with one set of three each leg. And then to this week, we hit two sets of six each leg. So we ramp up across beginning of May till uh, this is our near last week of July, where we start with 42 lunges twice a week. And now we're up to 168 lunges twice a week. And wow. to be able to do 168 lunges in five minutes ish and then go into a workout or to wake up the next day and not be super sore, that's pretty wild. And I think it conditions the hips and the groin and everything really well because we're going through, you know, all the planes of motion and all that hitting different angles that people will hit on the ice. So yeah, just a, a shameless plug for the lunge matrix starting at 42, bringing them up to a 168 total lunges. Chris, do you find that your guys or girls are better at that? Uh, that's a great question. I, I don't notice a difference. Yeah. I, I think it depends on the athlete, right? Some of them try to rush through it and they sort of short, short change their range of motion and I got to get on them. And then others just kind of buy in and just rock and roll through it. But I haven't noticed a difference between men and women at, at my level, at least question for you guys, uh, talking about work capacity still, um, I'm interested what you guys think, uh, in regards to multi-sport athletes mm-hmm. and how we can fit that in that work capacity time. Great question. Um, especially when it's almost like a continuous season going from sport to sport. Now, if you're playing your sport, then you'd think, you know, maybe I already have that work capacity, but if it's going from like baseball to wrestling, um, yeah, you know what I mean? Like something that's much more demanding. Take that away here, Ross. I know you were going to say that. So I I think for, uh, it just (laughs) depends on the sport. So that was, I was talking about this today with, with Ben, our, our new guy. Uh, we, I have an athlete that plays football, basketball, and baseball. And when watching his uh, jumps go from football, transitioning into basketball, which is polar opposite, they, they dip a good bit. Then they go from basketball to baseball. They're running and jumping the best times they have during baseball season, which makes sense as it's the least stressful, more explosive. We're not in that, you know, in that middle ground of basketball. So we're coming off the back end feeling really good. Now you could argue that basketball built his work capacity to then handle more work, to then recover better, to then, you know, run at higher speeds, blah, blah, blah. But I think for the, for the multi-sport athlete, it's solely going to depend on what their sports are. But I do think you do, you need to hit that at, at least, you know, one month out of the year in their off season or something, you know, whether it's in a warm up, whether it's uh, barbell complexes or whatever, and partic- particularly, you know, the, the, the anaerobic capacity piece, because they're going to get the aerobic mm-hmm. piece, but not necessarily that anaerobic capacity 
you know, where complex, uh, complexes come into play. And I just thought of that because that was kind of Vermeil's thing. And Chris may have a, a different opinion than that. And Blair, you might too. Uh, I don't have any experience with multi-sport <laughs> athletes uh, just from always working at the college level. But yeah, I, I mean, I it depends, right? That's always kind of the, the question and the, the answer there. It, it depends on what sport they're coming from and going into. But at least for me, when it comes to the, the high school level, I always felt that the first month of practices were always the sport coach building work capacity, whether they were doing that in a good way or a bad way. It always seemed like there was a lot of running, a lot of conditioning focus or emphasis. So I would just have to have a talk with the sport coach, whether it's like a club team or whether it's the high school that I would be working at and kind of just get their opinions of what they're doing. And maybe uh, whether we're going to consolidate the stressors and both do aerobic work, or I'm going to fill them and top them up on things they're not getting at practice. Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I'm I'm not too sure. And an interesting thing on this uh, work capacity topic though, I think Cal Cal Dietz does a good job of saying like, Hey, I run a, a G, GPP block and I run a very high volume program. And I thought it was really interesting. Uh, Cal had a couple slides, a couple presentations on conditioning how to use a sled for conditioning, how to use a bike for conditioning and uh, how to, how to just kind of run if that, those were your options. And at the end of his presentation, Chris Corfist, again, a, a sprinter sprinting coach just said, yeah, um, I'm going to steal some of those. I need more aerobic work or more work capacity work with my athletes because the, the better aerobic base or capacity that you have, the more quality sets you could do and the more you could recover from. And so, yeah, I, it just is what it is. I think it always kind of comes full circle or every coach may take a different route, but we all sort of end up at the same destination of there's just certain things you need. You need to be strong. You need to have work capacity. Hmm. Yeah, I've always liked Cal's uh, GP, GPP circuits, the 20... 20 seconds on 10 seconds off and then, you know, continuing to push those, um, for a couple of weeks. It's, uh, it's one of those hard, hard sells sometimes for the athletes, but man, it oh, yeah. works. And yeah. Then, that contralateral circuit that we've done before Blair, like that gases you gases. Yep. You feel good. And also remember doing those super long ISOs mm-hmm. too and mixing those in. Yeah. And, uh, I haven't included those two, too often anymore, but, um, man, they, they, they were effective. Yeah. That's funny. We were doing the five minute extreme ISOs before we knew of like DB hammer or Jay Schroeder, or really Dan Fichter. It was just like, Oh, oh yeah, let's try this out. And yeah, I've never really <laughs> done anything like that with, with an athlete. I I've gone up to a minute on a split squat, but yeah, I remember going through that and be like, I think he's writing this wrong. I don't think anyone could hold a, a <laughs> bar over their head or something for five minutes. Like this seems a little crazy. And then, yeah, lo and behold, it's a, it's a legit training method or strategy as I've, I've learned over the years. Yeah. And, Gu- and Guadango was talking about doing 40 yeah. seconds on 20 seconds off for their work capacity work. 
you know, working up to, you know, five, six minutes of total time. And so me and uh, the guy that works out me, works out with me in the morning, shout out Tristan Upton. Uh, he, we've been doing this, oh, we this week, uh, 40 seconds on 20 seconds off for five rounds on just some different movements. And I, I've been pretty wrecked, not going to lie just from, and it's light, like it's not heavy. <laughs> it's not heavy. Like we did, uh, uh, what did we do? Like I did, th- I did 20 pound dumbbells on bench, dumbbell bench. I'm brutal, brutal. But yeah, Guadango's, uh, you know, you talk 2010, but 4020, which honestly, I, I, I think I like 4020 better uh, than the 2010 when it comes to really trying to push uh, the capacity, I feel like. Yeah, I said 2010, just that was yeah. the starting point. I always kind of thought that 2010 was a good mm-hmm. place to start. And then very quickly, you know, moving 25, 10, 30, 10. And uh, I tried 4010 once and it was way too much, not enough rest. So. 4020 does sound pretty good. Yeah. No, I would agree with that. Hmm. Um, so kind of switching subjects here, but still on Oliver Meal Ross. I I can't remember where I saw you write it out, but Al talked about at the end of a workout jumping or doing some sort of plyometric to feel lighter again or feel springy again. Can you just kind of recap that one for us? Yeah, it was just the quick point of uh, at the end of any workout, doing something to get back into into rhythm, back into coordination, back into good impulse, uh, whether it's a plyo, it could be a run, it could be marches, it could be whatever, which I've now heard from, from him, Coach Gillespie, a bunch of the other guys uh, in that uh, speed, nervous system world. Uh, that, you know, mentioning doing something at the end to kind of reset everything and, and get you dialed back and, and leaving fresh. Uh, so, and that was something that I haven't done, but it's at least with as a coach, but it's something you can easily enter in in two seconds. And whether or not it, it does a big thing or not, who knows? But if it does, it takes two seconds and it's a good use of your time. Yeah, I just thought that was interesting. And correct me if I'm wrong, Coach Bill would always have jumps at the end, right? Was it, Whether it was jumping split squats or something else, right? Yeah, jumping split squats. And I, so I never got to ask him, but going, when I was, you know, a, a very amateur, not great weightlifter, going through a bunch of the Russian manuals, there was always like depth jumps near the end of the workout. And I remember seeing a, an interview with Dmitry Klokov where he mentioned that at the, at the end of his workouts or end of his training sessions, he would always do like jump squats or something. And it was just to feel lighter or, you know, get the spring back in the step. You know, just it, again, it's crazy of all these different people or coaches all end up kind of going back to the, the same thing, but no, I've I've never done it, so maybe it's something that's missing in my training. Take the heavy leg feeling and kind of lighten them up a little bit, restore that impulse, as uh, Coach Vermeil said this weekend. You guys think that some sort of uh, med ball work would be, you know, along the same lines too? Mm-hmm. You know, if we're looking at lower body like jumps and stuff, but maybe upper body, some some med ball work would be. Yeah, yeah, I could see that being good. 
I, whether it's real or not, I, I like throwing med balls. It just restores like aggression and has that kind of like testosterone driven type of thing, or it's just slamming, throwing as hard as you possibly can, whatever sort of implement it is. So I'm a big fan of that. Yeah. And so after Vermeil, uh, Zach Deschamps spoke from uh, TCU and of course he's many, I didn't realize he'd been at TCU for 15 years now, uh, but now he's uh, an assistant AD, so he's so he's overseeing the uh, SNC department and all these other coaches. So we kind of got into a little bit half and half, uh, essentially life as a director, essentially, and then different things to kind of help with overseeing your program. And so we started off his talk. Uh, just mentioning that typically with strength and conditioning, it's always a, uh, at least with strength coaches, it's like a an us versus them. So an us versus the coaches mentality typically where, you know, we're, we're against what the coaches are doing or, you know, we feel kind of jaded that, hey, we're coming in on a Saturday morning last minute because the coach asked us to for this, this random thing. Because uh, I guess something like that happened that, uh, TCU and that was something the, the sport coach was just like man why is it all strength and conditioning coaches are the same this and that and the other so uh, so then from there he's getting the point of of building trust with your coaches you know spending time with them you know explaining why you do what you do and, and building that trust and I know from uh, from Liberty or time at Liberty I always felt that working out with the coaches is the number one way to build Mm -hmm. trust Uh, because they they're in there working out and that's you know that's typically when you're kind of just talking about different stuff and most importantly when they are when they're working out you can help them do whatever they're doing and then you start explaining why Mm -hmm. and then all of a sudden they start feeling good and they start doing better and that's then where that that trust is built so I've always felt that's the way to go um, when it comes to that. But, you know, whether it's lifting with them, whether it's getting in the meetings, going to get food, whatever, uh, just build that trust and build that communication because then you you do get to understand each other. And then from there, your mm-hmm. big thing is to, uh, he was highlighting the fact of, of coach the coaches. So, and Chris, we kind of did this toward the end here where we were doing uh, the symposiums for the coaches you know, you're, you're giving them education mm-hmm. pieces, you're uh, explaining the whys of your program, things like that. So then the coaches understand, understand your whys and they are, they're learning the better, you know, the better habits and the better things to do. Like that's something that I'm, that I'm going to take away and I'm, I'm going to do a better job of, of giving educational materials out to our coaches and at the very least offer uh, different times and whether it's once a month, once twice a semester, once a season, I don't really know, but offer, uh, basically a, a symposium like we did at Liberty and whether or not the coaches come, who knows. And if it's only one coach that comes, that's great. That's fine with me. Yeah. And I am happy to sit there and pour into that program. Cause as long as a coach shows effort to me that they want to improve and that they want their program to be better, I'll do anything you want. It's, uh, coaches that are never around and don't ask questions and then show up last minute that I don't necessarily want to help so much. But if I've got a good relationship with you and you're showing that you're wanting to learn, 
then then we'll be we'll be good. Which I did again. I did I did like that a lot. And then his next point, and Chris, you kind of get into this with hockey, and I attempt to get into it with some other sports of getting involved at at all levels of the program. So that starts, you know, we have our physical prep, but it's trying to get involved with tactical prep with, well, not necessarily tactical with technical prep and potentially tactical. If you are really that knowledgeable in a sport, but more so, uh, Zach and his baseball example was, you know, he now does the throwing programs for their kids. And he started doing that by taking the developmental kids that weren't playing and writing their throwing programs because the coach let him do that. And then, you know, he got a semester and long story short, he did a great job. And then now he does all the throwing programs and biomechanics and that type of stuff. So now I've raised my value. I've built my trust. I'm now, I'm just more valuable to the program and and what I'm doing. Uh, And then last, his big thing was really is just communicate, just communicate, over communicate, um, uh, and he does, uh, once a week emails to the coaching staff, just talking about everything going on in the program or just like a highlight of, Hey, this kid's doing a good job. These two kids weren't, uh, this is going on, you know, this has happened in the weight room, but I'm handling it. Uh, and he was making the point of, you know, the head coaches are the, the CEOs of the program and they've got to take in, they need all the information they can get to then make decisions on who's on the team who's off the team especially when it comes down to scholarship money and that type of stuff because if a kid's not doing all the extra stuff they're supposed to do and doing it in the way that you want then just don't let them be on the team so those were those big things for me i don't know if you guys got some extra thoughts there i mean first thought is dang that sounds like uh, a phenomenal presentation to be be at and be a part of and again just a to highlight CVAFs where they bring in different speakers with different topics and they get to speak to, you know, what they're passionate about or whatever in the moment. But uh, here's a talk that isn't weight room specific, isn't X's and O's specific, but just from your little recap there, it was just like, Oh man, I took away a bunch of like uh, notes here, like the once a week emails to the coaches view the coaches as the CEO give information to the coaches so that they can make better decisions. Yeah, that's huge. I really like that. But I, I, I know, I know before we recorded Ross, you felt like you talk a lot, but I uh, just kind of want to flip it to you being in that role. Like Zach is with that kind of assistant AD role. What were some of the big things that you're either doing well or that you think you might want to modify going into this year? Uh, I don't think, uh, I communicate with the coaches I see a lot all the time. So like I communicate with the football coach, I communicate Mm -hmm. with the baseball coach because they work at the school, um, to, to, uh, caveat that I also work with a bunch of their kids, uh, where I don't, you know, I've only got a couple soccer kids. I've only got a couple, Mm -hmm. uh, tennis kids. Like I just don't, I have a, I have a ton of football, a ton of basketball, a ton of track and a ton of baseball and also have in volleyball. So with the, with the volleyball coach, I'm talking to him. Um, and he runs such a good program that I don't, uh, necessarily need to talk to him a lot. And I don't know if he would want that communication, but I think that could just be a, 
a part where do a little better job of, of being on board with what's going on. I think our track coach would be all for it because uh, they've both ran at a high level and they, they kind of have that expectation. But I think that's something I could pick up on. I think now that I have, uh, now that I've been helping us out with our middle school, um, that communication piece is just going to need to be better. And then, like I said, man, I think the coaching the coaches is really the next level. Now that I'm a year yep. in at this high school, that's really the next step we need to take because I'm doing all I can only control, you know, whoever's in my class and the kids that I see. But at the end of the day, the coaches are going to make the biggest impact on performance and the biggest return on investment. And they need to know best practices. This is why we do this. Like if I if I have to see another team sit in a circle and do static stretches and then go play a game, I'm going to lose it. And so like, it's, it's things like that. Of you know, we've like, I've pivoted the football team, you know, we, they no longer do 20 hamstring stretches and just mess around for 10 minutes before practice. They now do a warm up. Uh, and funny, funny story for that is I went and watched them play seven on seven the other day. And I hope they listen to this. Went and watched them play seven on seven the other day. <laughs> and they, I, you know, I'm just watching. I'm not doing their warm up. It's not my, I don't need to. They, we literally do it every day. There's like a core, there's like a core six to seven, eight things that we do every day. And then from there, I vary it. So these kids get up to warm up and they do one thing, one thing that we do in our warm up and everything else was a hamstring stretch or like stuff that we I haven't seen all year. They did they did our goat stretch and they did hip rockers and they did it for like 10 yards up and back for like 2 minutes. There wasn't a single pogo jump, there wasn't a single prime time, there wasn't a single sprint. There wasn't any of this stuff that we literally do every day. They got done with their warm up. Love it. They got done with their warm up. Love it. And I was like, guys, that was awful. What what was that? We do this every day. And they're like, Well, I don't I don't remember it. I'm like, no, 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 no. No. You remember it. Anyway, we had that we had that talk. I had that talk with them the next day. Yeah, oh yeah. With the uh had that talk with them the next day. So that was that was fun. But yes, coaching the coaches is probably the biggest one for me. With with the athlete warm up. They definitely know and remember. Uh, I have athletes where if we're going to hold or do something for 15 seconds and I like, I'm not paying attention. I'm talking to somebody and it goes to like 16, they switch. Like they just have it like <laughs> dialed in their brain of like, that was 15 seconds. Let, let me go over now. Yeah. It's pretty wild. But yeah, to, to that point, the, the best thing that I ever did at Liberty was host the Liberty Hockey Summit where I just took everything that I've learned about hockey from uh, guys in the NHL or guys at uh, major D1 schools and just kind of presented it to our coaches of here's what I do, here's why, here's what I suggest that you guys do and why. And once I did that, that's when we kind of entered the uh, the the twenty what first century so to speak and we stopped training 
uh, on ice with not as great or as beneficial of strategies as we do now, right? Coaches started to understand, oh, we should be really fast and we should be fresh. We shouldn't be really slow and really tired. And that, yeah, that was big. And I, I definitely need to do something like that again. Uh, and yeah, edu- educate the coaches. I, I think that's a big one. I, th- I think one of the, uh, the, my favorite years coaching, uh, at Liberty was when I was coaching hockey and our yeah. team in the weight room too. Um, but I will say one of the things I ran into was the, the classic Mondays off mm-hmm. workouts and as try as hard as I may, um, coaches, you know, we'd play a game Friday and Saturday and then, you know, guys retired. Someone on the team might say, Hey, can we take workout workout off on Monday? Well, why are we taking Monday off? Yeah. <laughs> Let's get back in the weight room on Monday and then we can ease up later in the week and go into the next weekend fresh. But that was one of those battles that, you know, that's when you try and fight back a little bit more and, and educate. And that's where I think the communication is everything and, and, and educating the coaches um, as much as you so, can. Yeah. Oh, for sure. And, and that's a lot of like culture thing with, with the athletes and the captains too. If you get a good captain on your team, oh man, it's such a, such a benefit. Let's talk about Guadango. So his, uh, so like I told you, Chris, before we got talking, you and him are the same person and you need to yeah. meet. And so just figure out a way to do that because you guys are the same person. Um, so he, yeah, he, yeah. he got into his talk, just kind of talking about stuff he'd learned. Um, he also talked about starting with work capacity and then building strength, pretty sh- straightforward stuff. Uh, the, the heart and soul of his training at the end of the day is just going to be mitigating risk. He's also dealing with professional athletes. So it's, hmm getting them to feel good. What's the the least amount of risk I can do and train to make them feel better. (laughs) Because he was talking about, that's why he got into acupuncture and why he's learning that. Cause then he can be kind of a one-stop shop for his athletes. Instead of having to go all these other places, he is just the guy that takes care of them and gets them feeling good. Because if you can get a pro athlete feeling good, then they're going to work with you for a really long time. Uh, and that's really all that matters. Mm -hmm. And so getting that, and then he, he, and I, and I shared it that I shared that podcast with y'all, but he got to talking about, uh, just getting your sleep, getting your seven to nine hours. Uh, cause I guess he went through a, a, a rough patch where he got a ton of anxiety. He wasn't sleeping very well. Like I think it was something stupid, like was up for 36 hours straight, like something wild of, uh, of couldn't go to sleep. So like there was just stuff going on. Um, and, and now that's kind of what he focuses on, but he, he referenced that podcast. I sent you guys from, uh, Joe Rogan and I think it was with Matt Williams. Is that the guy's name? Matthew Walker. Matt. Yes. Yes. Matthew Walker. Uh, sounds right. and every, about every minute of that episode, I'm out here like saying out loud. Wow. Wow. Wow just the stats yeah. with the sleep and because uh, the really interesting highlight in that podcast, if you've gotten to it or not is on date with daylight savings time, they have data of 
with when we spring ahead and we lose an hour, like heart attack risks goes up or heart attack goes up by like 21%. But then in the fall, when we fall back, it goes down 21% because we gain an hour and lose an hour. And that little bit of fluctuation Mm -hmm. impacts heart attacks. But he goes into all these stats, which is which is wild. Um, but yeah, he, he got into a lot of different stuff, was really all over the place. And it, it was good, but I think the a really huge takeaway from his acupuncture doctor that I liked, uh, and Chris, you can kind of ask questions from there, is uh, his acupuncture doctor and just how that works is uh, emphasizing the learning piece before you start really teaching other people what you do. And I think it's super valuable kind of for our field uh and it was making the point of you you learn for the first 10 years you spend the next 10 years figuring out your own system uh then you spend the next 10 years perfecting your own system and then you spend the next 10 years teaching so after basically 30 years of learning that's when you can really start teaching people uh and you figured out your own stuff and obviously we're learning. We've been around. I feel like I'm at the point of where I'm starting to figure out my own system for sure, uh, and and getting in there. But also, you're you're perfecting it, but more so figuring it out, and then get uh, get to the point of perfecting it. But I think people can be very quickly to just, hey, I learned this, and then you just start teaching, and then uh, you didn't you know actually try it and actually learn it and see what works, see what doesn't. It's kind of like Chris, we were talking before we got on here of, of debating on whether or not I want to do this, you know, a typical linear low, medium, high weeks, or do I want to vary the load or undulate the load within the week on specific movements? You know, if it's a, if it's a heavy deadlift week, then it's going to be a light uh, squat week and vice versa. Or do I want the whole week to be uh, low, medium, heavy? Now, I know that low, medium, heavy gets results. I've done it. I've seen it. I know that on the medium week, that's when I'm going to see PRs, and that's going to be our best week performance-wise. But if I go the other way, I feel like I'm going to have a higher quality training, and it's not going to be as as stressful. So like it's things like that where you're kind of perfecting your system and figuring out what works, what doesn't. Um, but yeah, from him, it, it was it was good. But I think you need to meet him. Next time I'm up in New Jersey, I'll bring them uh, some Taylor ham and mozzarella, and we'll we'll just kick <laughs> back like uh, yeah, like old old friends. I do really well with the Italians. I gr- grew up with a lot of them, so I know I know what it takes. And he's got a beard. I got a beard. It'll be perfect. Ross, what else you got? Uh, Who else was there? Anybody else? Old Jonas Speedworks. So he so he spoke. Um, his. Chris, you would have really liked his super detailed on the super detailed on the running. Um, that would have, mm, yeah. if that would have been in 2019, I would have had no notes because it just would have been over my head, and I wouldn't have yeah. known <laughs> yeah, yeah. what I was, uh, what he was saying or what he was looking at. But uh, nevertheless, so his uh, the big thing from him, he was talking about just accelerating in the first bit and. Uh, he opened up with highlighting the fact of look at what good coaches agree on, you know, whatever the top coaches are, what are all the things that they basically all agree on? 
All right, well, you need to learn those things. Those are the things you need to focus on. Then, for, And everybody's going to have their little nuances of what they agree or disagree. But, you know, 90% of the time they're agreeing on the same stuff. It's that last 10% that they change. So figure out what those things are, learn, and use those, use those things. So then he got into uh, profiling uh, ways people accelerate. And it was uh, mm-hmm. basically their stride length and then how long they're in the air or stride frequency um, and how long they're in the air. And both have different strategies. Uh, if you're shorter airtime, you're more strength-based. If you're higher uh, airtime, you're more elastic because I'm going to spend more time in the air to then put my foot in the ground. If I am low airtime, I'm trying to get my foot back on the ground because I'm strength-based and I'm trying to spend more time on the ground because I need more time to apply force. Uh, but he had all these videos and it, it broke it down and now I can't unsee it from running, seeing our kids run. Like <laughs> bef- be- yeah. beforehand, I never would have really categorized it or, or noticed it per se. Uh, but after after watching that, it was just interesting. And ideally, you kind of want to be in the middle, right? I don't want to be too, too low. I don't want to be too high. I want to be kind of in the middle. And he was making the point of, if you do, if you do really try to change somebody's technique like that, then you're going to change, you're trying to change their, their natural strategy. And that's going to increase your risk or not risk. Yeah. Increase, uh, risk of injury for that athlete. If you do decide Mm -hmm. to try to change that natural, uh, gate that they do for acceleration, um, broke. And then, you know, acceleration broke down basically into three things of, of, how well you project, how well you switch your legs, and then reacting to the ground, and their whole system mm-hmm. breaks that down, and they they anal- they uh, do analysis and and work on that. But his it was it was uh, it was good. It was really good, and it was good to hear him at the end. He was talking about uh, that he's both a quote unquote like muscle and movement guy. Like it's not all uh, just movement. Like you do need to go strengthen these things like i want to go in the weight room and lift and do isos and work on this to to help this out but then i also want you to move well and getting that balance where i feel like most track guys uh quote-unquote track guys it's always movement it's not necessarily the weight room piece involved yeah now that uh that makes sense and to, to go back to the kind of first thing you were mentioning with jonas of look at what the good coaches agree on that's something now that I've dived down the speed world quite a bit, that's something that I need to do is figure out what some other coaches are doing. And case in point, I had a conversation today with another coach. We were looking at a picture of a sprinter and we just like couldn't agree on something. And it was kind of about hip position. And I was like, no, 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 you want neutral hips all the time. You do not want anterior pelvic tilt. And then the coach I was talking to was like, oh, well, this guy says this and this. And that's when I realized like, oh, we're just, we're on like two different pages here. We're talking about two different kind of like technique or technical things. So yeah, I feel like for me, that's kind of the next thing. Like uh, all the guys at Altus, Stu McMillan, uh, Stu McMillan, Dan Paff, I I haven't really dived into any of that. And that's a, a big time education platform here for sprinting so 
yeah, that was a, a kind of a good reminder. And I thought it was interesting where he's profiling acceleration types because I, now I could start to see it in my mind. Cause I've, you know, sat on my 1080 and watched so many people accelerate for 10 meters. There's athletes that have what I would call like a low heel recovery or just they keep their feet lower to the ground. And then there's athletes that kind of project themselves out, get their foot high and kind of strike the ground. So yeah, I'll have to be on the lookout for that and then look at some of their uh, trap bar numbers and their vertical jump numbers and, and kind of see a difference. Cause I have one of my fastest hockey players is one of our worst jumpers, hmm. right? So is he just all strength based and just pop, pop, pop. And so, yeah, it'll be be interesting. I'll have to start to look at that. Have you started creating profiles for the uh, hockey players based on those things at all, based off the 1080? Uh, so I've I've got a bunch of data, and I have my whiteboard like uh, a beautiful mind written out. Right now, I have one of my one of my workers going through and filling out like a last bit of data for me. So. Yes, and I'm waiting on a few, a uh, few more pieces to come together to kind of see if all this work was worth it uh, as far as a, a profiling uh, type of thing goes. What I'm really trying to do is correlate 30 meter on and off ice force velocity profiles with the 1080 with a 10 meter sprint, and just the more data I get with these force velocity profiles on and off the ice. And the more data I get for 10 meters, I feel like it's just kind of going to be there. Um, but the thing we're plugging in right now is distance that you're going to cover in one second. So then I could learn whether this person is a good starter. A good starter is going to have more um, isometric strength and yes and no, but the, uh, the the long and short of of that cool. question good stuff so then the yeah. the last speaker of the day was Allie Kirshner and so she she works with art of coaching with Brett Bartholomew and so uh so she got out of strength and conditioning she oh, was really at cool. Stanford with women's basketball uh what I didn't realize is that her last year of coaching she that was when Stanford won the national championship for women's basketball. So then she got out of of strength and conditioning the year after your team wins a you know uh, a national championship, which is an interesting time to to choose you know to get out of strength and conditioning. But hers was yeah. uh, hers was really good, especially if you've been coaching, because um, her thing was. Uh, why why do coaches leave strength and conditioning? I think we can kind of all have an opinion here for sure of, of why do different guys and girls get out of it. And she, she opened up with, you know, how many of you guys know coaches that have, that have left the field, which basically everybody in the room. And then how many uh, coaches do you know that are, uh, that retire as SNC coaches, not many, not, not many. Uh, and so there's clearly some sort of yeah. gap going on of 
what, whether it's the, the expectations of the job, the pay, you know, support all, you know, all that kind of stuff. She, and she broke down, you know, a bunch of these reasons of, of why coaches leave. And it kind of led with burnout, like burnout is very real. And I think that's hard for, she said this too. And, and I know I'm guilty of it for sure. Uh, at times where burnout, you can almost feel guilty of being burnt out uh, because, you know, as a coach, you know, and especially a strength coach, you know, it's just supposed to be go, 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 go all the time. Like thinking that you don't need a break and you don't need that mental break. You're just going like you're the guy or the girl that can just tough it out and, and you're going to be fine. And, you know, burnout doesn't mean that you're leaving and leaving doesn't mean that you're burnt out. Uh, it's just that, Hey, you're going to need a, You just need some sort of break. And a lot of times the way that it's set up, especially with the strength coaches, like let's just say a schedule of a strength coach, you're there earliest and you're leaving last typically. And you are going in on days or you're doing things at odd hours of the day that the sport coach speaking to college that the sport coach isn't necessarily doing. So that can lead to a little bit of, uh, irritation and, uh, strain the relationship sometimes between your strength coach and your sport coach, because one's there for a lot of hours and not, isn't necessarily compensated for it that well. The other one is significantly compensated for it and is not there nearly the hours, uh, all year. And there's certainly, there's certainly seasons, right? There's seasons to every, every job and strength, strength and conditioning doesn't necessarily have seasons. I mean, you have your sport season, but like you're still full bore in that in when the sport is in season, but then you're in the off season and then you're full bore there. Like it never, there's never this break of, of a, of a time to kind of recharge, but nevertheless, she broke, she broke down all these, all these different reasons. And, with all of these reasons, like it's basically lack of promotion, uh, lack of pay, uh, lack of understanding or being appreciated, not feeling like you have a good community. So like, for example, Chris, uh, like you're over at the ice rink by yourself all day, Jared or whoever is over at Toys R Us by themselves all day, like you're not interacting with each other. And so that's not helpful. Like it's, it's, you don't have somebody else that does what you do. Yeah. Um, all the inner competition piece that you see, like guys and and girls kind of, Mm -hmm. it's just a toxic thing. Um, not having the right role or being in the right fit, uh, lack of autonomy. Um, you can't necessarily quantify your value and then, uh, other stuff like, you know, other stuff like that. So long story short of all those things, whatever you feel is the biggest mismatch in your job. Uh, that's what you need to work on. And that's, and that'll kind of help you get over burnout, not want to leave a job, you know, work on those things. Uh, and some of those things you can't fix. Some of them you can, um, and this kind of go from there. Her biggest practical thing that she mentioned that I really like was stacking your days. So in other words, if you've got basically making a high low model for your days, so uh, let's say like Monday, Tuesday, thir- Thursday, Friday are like big work days for you. You know, 
Monday, I'm going to spend, you know, I'm going to Monday's like answer a bunch of my emails, do programming, whatever it is. But Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, or, you know, heavy work days, heavy training days. But then Wednesday, you know, I don't have lifting. There's no this, like that's my low day. So that's the, that's the day I can really kind of recharge. And so stacking tasks on different days versus just kind of doing it all at once at one time can help give you a little mental break during the week. So you can kind of recharge. It's like, hey, on Wednesday, I'm going to do this. I'll spend a little extra time at breakfast or reading or whatever. And then uh, I got to go to practice. I do the practice and then I, I go home. So I thought that was a super, super helpful thing. Did you take away or combine any things with uh, uh, Zach's presentation and Allie's presentation? where you were like, oh, okay, yeah, uh, I, I see these two not until and working together. You're saying something I haven't. Um, I think like, I think for, you know, Zach's situation, okay. <laughs> yeah. you know, when, when you're getting your way up to a director role, you're naturally, or an assistant AD role, there is a little progression. There is going to be some pay in, pay in there and there's going to be kind of defining your role. But I think that for like a guy like Zach, when you're in a role like that, I, I would argue that he is the one that's really controlling the why coaches leave per se, like all of those little things, like he is going to dictate a lot of that, of talking value where you fit all that type of stuff. Um, more so than anybody else, because you're the one that's reporting to the AD or the associate AD or whoever, to then fight for your people and do those type of things. So you're really more in charge of that. I would argue at the end of the day, Mm -hmm. going back to the burnout there's, so I've been at Liberty, uh, on July 1st, I finished eight years, right? So I'm on year nine and there was only one year, one semester where I use that word like burnout. Uh, it's yeah, just, I, I love Liberty and I, I, it's it's a great place to work, but it was during COVID. So the first semester of fall 2020, I was just, I, I just felt like it was so unfair every single day where I went from, you know, running four workouts a week with men's and women's hockey to eight workouts a week, you know, on paper. But on top of that, it was probably like 12 to 15 workouts a week working with people's schedules. And I just felt like I was the only person in the entire department who was having to go through all these, you know, hoops and do all this extra work with all the cleaning and wearing masks and everything like that. And so that was really rough. And that was, uh, that was kind of a taste for me of there's probably a lot of other coaches out there that this is their every day where, you know, the sport coaches, they just showed up, ran their practice and left. I had to, you know, sanitize before, after, and run additional workouts because we had to have smaller groups. And uh, yeah, I just, I would not want that. If if that was my life, I, I could not imagine uh, having that many workouts, just staying, staying an hour and a half later because I have to wipe down every single weight there uh, and just feeling like nobody else was, uh, you know, putting in the the effort or the work that I was. That was tough. That was a very tough time. One practical thing 
that we could uh, send home to the viewers here, Ross, that you think you, you may have taken away. Uh, and then Blair, I'll, I'll go to you with your kind of practical thing that you took away and I'll, uh, I'll finish it off here and then we could kind of wrap this up. Um, I think for me, the biggest practical thing is just educate everyone around you of why you do what you do. Like every single person. Yeah, that's, that's a, a good one for sure. And yeah, it just creates buy-in helps everyone get on the same page, get your support. I, I like it. All right, Blair, what about you? Uh, something we've talked about today or, uh, you know, exchanging texts with Ross while he was at the conference or recapping and stuff like that. I think uh, building off what Ross said, and like we're all kind of the lifelong learner types. Um, in in educating mm-hmm. everyone else, Definitely. you have to you're forced to spend the time educating yourself. And as you know, like the more you learn, the the less you feel you know. Right. Think about the first time you opened yep, up Super yep. Training. Right. It's like, it's like at that point before you open it, you're like, Oh, I got a pretty good handle on things. And then you open it. You're like, I I know nothing. I know literally know nothing. Um, so I just adding to Ross's thing, but one thing that stuck, it was just like, look at what good coaches agree on. And I mean, how many of Mm. the snake oil salesmen are there out there on social media who literally have coached for a minute and you know, they have 95,000 followers. So it's like, well, hold on a second. We can figure out who the good coaches are. It's not always the person with the most followers, but it's the people who've been around, right? And Alvar Meal has seen more athletes than we've seen people in a Walmart. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> um, yeah, so yeah. like, and they don't have the tech. They didn't have what we have now, right? It was with these two things and using their other senses to like, actually learn how to coach. So we can look at past coaches, present coaches who are really solid and like they are probably going to agree on a lot of things if they're really good. And we just take that and absorb it. And um, that's going to take us a long way. So I think that was one of the, my favorite things. I, I wrote it down in big capital letters. So Nice. Yeah, that's a good one. That's a good one. Uh, so, so for me, it was, uh, I totally agree on the, the education side, making sure that I'm keeping all the coaches informed and, uh, seeking out that time for them. Uh, and I agree with you as well, Blair of, uh, just seeing what, what the other best people are doing, so to speak. And, my, my kind of blend for that is I really tend to get carried away with things, right? Like, uh, Ross, you're always my, uh, my anchor to kind of pull me down before I float away into, uh, <laughs> just not the, not the right place, so to speak. And looking at the, the old school guys or the, the old timers or the OGs, whatever we want to call it, the, the guys who've been doing it the longest, it kind of seems like they, they have their stuff and it always works. And so for me, it's, I, I need to view everything through just a more simpler lens of they got to be strong. They have to have work capacity and make sure I always have that in mind first before I kind of get carried away with some of the, the fancier stuff that I, I tend to get distracted by or just really enjoy. 
and uh, I've heard from a bunch of coaches, you have to have work capacity, you have to have that aerobic component. And we know that you have to be strong, maybe not into the extent that, you know, we, we used to think about all these years ago of constantly, constantly pushing up your squat and deadlift and bench, but you have to have a, a foundational level of strength. It's one of the lowest hanging fruits and you have to have capacity to kind of build and put all this together. With that being said, any uh, other kind of thoughts or things to add here, fellas? Cool. All right. Well, that was our recap of Ross heading up to Richmond, Virginia for CVAS 2022. And I, I made a note here at the beginning of what I really liked uh, from my time of going there in 2019 was the speakers had time to speak, right? They weren't limited to 45 minutes or an hour. If they had a good topic and they were passionate about it, they could just roll. And I really liked that where, you know, there's sometimes the the movie ends and you want it to keep going. Well, at CVASPs, they allow allow the movie to keep going as long as the, the audience wants. But fellas, uh, another good one here. Uh, a lot of good stuff to kind of take away. And as our uh, school years start to approach and, you know, the summer is kind of ending, I think we're all going to have some really awesome kind of practical takeaways to uh, head into the year with. Thanks for listening to another episode of Victory Over Self Radio. Episodes are available anywhere you listen to podcasts. And we also have videos and clips of each episode on our Victory Over Self Athletics YouTube channel. Like and subscribe and let us know if there's any person or topic you'd like us to cover. We'll see you all next time.